All right, if you can start making your way to your seats. If you would start making your way back to your seats, we're going to go ahead and continue to worship tonight. If you've got your Bible, it will turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We're going to just be reading verses 39 through 43, a short uh, passage, but one that probably many of us are familiar with. The story of the two thieves who were crucified next to Jesus. All right, starting in verse 39 of chapter 23, it says this. Now, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the others responded, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we come to this text, we ask that you, um, God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, um, that you would shine a light on these words, uh, that you would shine a light on our hearts and our minds and our understanding, um, that that uh, the Holy Spirit would minister to us and teach us these things uh, and how to receive them rightly, that you would implant them in our hearts. Um, God, that as we see this picture of the gospel displayed in this passage, um, God, that it would be it would be the center, um, that we would not drift from it, that we would not drift into uh, legalism, God, that we would not drift into um, any kind of works-based or merit-based um, understanding of salvation, uh, that we would recognize uh, the grace and mercy that is found in Jesus Christ alone. God, minister to our hearts um, by the beauty of this passage, by the simplicity of this passage. Um, that we would understand it rightly. God, we pray for uh, your church um, this Lord's Day. Uh, we pray for uh, our our sister churches around Blount County um, who have preached the gospel faithfully this day, who have um, ministered to the flock this day, uh, God, who have, have uh, held out the bread of life um, so that, uh, God, those that you um, have called uh, may receive it. God, help us to do that in our own uh, church, in our own families, in our own uh, workplaces, God, in our own lives. God, that we would take advantage of every opportunity we have um, to to sit at your feet, to learn from you, God, to worship you, um, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, shoulder to shoulder uh, with brothers and sisters. God, help us to all, in all these things. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right. So this is, uh, as I mentioned last week, we are, uh, this is one of my favorite passages in all the scriptures. We're already running a little bit later than we do. So, so I got to get going, but man, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to preach until I'm done preaching. Um, this is, this is my favorite story in the entire Bible. A lot of times I'll say, Oh, this is one of my favorite stories. This is one of my favorite verses. This is one of my favorite. This is my favorite, okay, because of the simple beauty and, and, and drama of the story. And it is such a beautifully clear picture of the gospel. And so that's maybe the first thing to answer is to say, why is this passage so important? I think, why is it so important? It's, it's not the only one in the whole Bible that could do this, but it, part of the reason, um, why it's so important for one, just on the surface is it, it is so moving. It is one of the most moving, in my opinion, uh, uh, stories in the entire scripture. Okay. Um, the, the human drama that is at the center of it, uh, is, is, is incredible. And so like, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say, we'll see what happens. I was sitting in that corner back there writing this sermon this week and I was crying and I kept on thinking people are going to look at me and like walk over and be like, sir, are you okay? And I'm going to have to tell them it's fine. I'm just writing a sermon or whatever. Um, but it is a, it is, it's the, 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 the beauty and the drama of the passage is incredible. But, but more importantly, probably is I think this passage is a study in conversion. It's a study in conversion. We have the promise of Jesus in this passage to a man that he will be with him in paradise. So for one, we are sure that this man is in heaven today. Right? Does that make sense? Um, there aren't many people in scripture that we can say that about, if you think about it. There are lots of people that we assume are in heaven, but there are only a few people in the scriptures that we know for sure ended up there. Because we have the testimony from scripture. And this guy is one of them. So the interesting thing is to see this. At the beginning of this passage, this man is not a believer. He is not saved. And by the end of it, five lines later, he is going to spend eternity with God. He goes from being lost to being saved in these five verses. And so somehow this is a distillation of the gospel. And I think it answers the essential question of what the gospel is. What is the good news? So here's here's sort of jumping in into the passage. One thing to notice is that this story is unique to Luke. We've said that a lot. We've talked about the fact that Luke has a lot of stories, particularly parables that none of the other gospels include. Luke is the only one to include this interchange. All three gospels or all three other gospels mention the two thieves that Jesus is crucified next to. Matthew and Mark both make another point. When they talk about that passage, they both say that the thieves, plural, hurled insults at Jesus. And that's interesting because this passage puts a different, there's a fuller something going on here. But if we just had the other two gospels, we would think that both of those two men on each side of Jesus only hurled insults at Jesus. But we learn more in this passage. So perhaps at the beginning of the day in, in this story, Maybe both of these men are saying the same kind of things that we've heard um, all these other people say in the last few verses. And maybe both of them were saying the kind of thing that one thief says in verse 39. What does he say? One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So what we're going to do is we're going to call that guy the defiant thief, just to kind of keep them separate. Okay, That's the defiant thief. 
His words to Jesus are sort of the culmination of all the other rejections and words of, of abuse that have been hurled at Jesus by the religious leaders, by the Roman authorities, uh, even by, by Pilate and Herod in general that we've seen over the last, the course of the last two chapters. But there is a little difference in the language and it's, and it's sort of interesting. He says, aren't you the Messiah? Everybody else has asked the question, if you are the Messiah, then save yourself or, or get, get down off the cross or whatever. This man says, aren't you the Messiah? Um, it, it seems to be in a weird way that he's almost affirming who Jesus is. And so he's essentially saying, kind of like we talked about last week, you're the Messiah. Do some Messiah stuff right now, okay? Do some Messiah stuff. Get us out of here. Save us. Save yourself. You are the Messiah. Do these things. I thought to myself as I was as I was studying this week, do you ever say the same thing to Jesus? Right? Do you basically say, hey, Jesus, why don't you do some Jesus stuff in this situation? I've got this problem going on in my life. It would be really great if you would step in and do some of your Messiah stuff. I've even said that this week going through things. Jesus, why don't you do something about this situation? And yet the warning is there for us because you hear it in this man's tongue. There's a mocking in the tone. There's an accusation in the tone that we have no right to ever accuse God of anything. And yet there's an accusation in this tone. There's a lack of perspective. There's a lack of conviction on his own heart. There's a lack of guilt in his own life as he says these things. And so we can assume that maybe as Mark and Matthew tell us, this is the kind of thing that both of them were saying at the beginning of the day. And yet at some point, this other thief, so we have the defiant thief, we'll call this guy the repentant thief. Suddenly he changes his attitude. Now, the, the big question is, is or one big question is, is how and why? What happens in this guy's life to change his attitude towards Jesus? He's hurling insults and accusations at him one moment, and all of a sudden something happens. Now, here's the deal. We are not sure what happened. All we know is this, is that Jesus is crucified. He is put on the cross roughly 9 a.m. in the morning. He is, he is, uh, he has died by 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and this event takes place somewhere in between there. And there's several things that transpired. Um, there could be other things that transpired that are not recorded. So we maybe some kind of interchange happened that we don't see here. But there's a couple of things that did happen. For one, the sky went dark. About noon in the middle of the day, the sky goes dark. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be a signal to me that something strange is going on. But before we assume that that's what changed this man's heart, we also should notice that nobody else's hearts are changed. Everybody else sees the same things that this guy does, and nobody else responds in the same way. The truth is, we don't know what changed the defiant man, but we can maybe say why he was changed. And that is, there was a radical imposition of the Holy Spirit to change this man's heart. That he was a defiant, being crucified thief, and suddenly the Holy Spirit softened his heart, 
changed his perspective, made him capable of responding in the way that he needed to respond. That is a grace of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that several times over the course of, of the Gospels, right? We see places like when Peter says he confesses Jesus Christ as 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 the Messiah, as the Son of God. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, hey, you didn't come up with this on your own, Peter, right? You didn't just get this because you're smarter than everybody else. This happened because the Holy Spirit told you this, because the Spirit has revealed these things to you. I think that's what's going on here. The Holy Spirit reveals to this man something, and his life has changed. As an aside, this is a testament to deathbed conversions, okay? If you have ever been asked the question or thought in your own mind, are deathbed conversions a real thing, right? Do people get saved on their deathbed when they have lived a life of godlessness and wretchedness their whole life? And then right before they die on their deathbed, they get saved. Is that something that really happens? The answer is yes, 100%. Now, is every deathbed conversion or, 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 or thing true? There's no way we can know that, right? I'm sure many of them are not true, but some of them are, and they can be. And so the next time somebody asks you that, do you believe in deathbed conversions? You might say, well, I don't encourage anybody to go about that, right? Because we don't know the day of our death, and it may surprise you. In fact, I'm going to bet for most of us, it will surprise us. But if we don't believe, at least in the possibility of deathbed conversions, it may be because we don't understand the completely unmerited nature of the gospel, the completely unmerited gift of salvation that we've been given. The truth is, all conversions are deathbed conversions, right? Because we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. You were dead the moment you believed in Christ and he made you alive again. And God, through no worthiness of your own, saved you. So what does that look like? Because again, we see it in four, in the course of four verses, this guy gets saved. What does he do? What does he say? What is the attitude of his heart? What is the confession of his mouth? What is the belief in his head that leads him to salvation? I think we can break down his words to Jesus and we can see what is necessary. We can see the very thing that we read in Mark chapter one earlier as our assurance of salvation. We can see the repent and believe of the gospel in this passage. So what's the first thing he says? His friend over here, um, his, his partner in crime, maybe they didn't have anything to do with each other, but, but, but this other guy is saying, why don't you save yourself and us, Jesus? And the man's first words to him are, don't you even fear God? Don't you even fear God? Often when we are talking to friends or something about the gospel, we're reading the Bible and we, we read a passage that talks about fearing God. We are quick to add a caveat. We'll say, well, the Bible says to fear God, but I just want you to understand that fearing God is about awe. It's about, it's about recognizing, you know, the awe of God. That's what it means by fearing God. I certainly think it does mean that, but we shouldn't move so quickly to awe and recognize that, you know what? There's supposed to be a normal level of fear when we come to God. 
because he is a being of unlimited power and authority. It is on his judgment and his judgment alone that you will be deemed worthy of heaven or hell. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This man, this repentant thief, realizes that it is God that he's going to have to give an answer to in the very near future. And maybe he even knows the sentiment that we see in the book of Hebrews, although Hebrews hadn't been written yet. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Old Testament quote. The Lord will judge his people. Again, a quote from the Old Testament. And then what does it say? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is not an attitude that we tend to hold in our current culture and the way we think about Jesus. The way we think about God, the way we think about salvation. But this man realizes it. He says, fearing the Lord is something that we should do. And here's another thing. As believers today, it shouldn't be something that we're ashamed of. It shouldn't be something that we're like, eh, the Bible says to fear God, but that just seems like a really bad PR choice. And so I don't want to talk about fearing God. Let's just talk about loving God and, and make everybody happy. What does the Bible say about fearing the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of, of, of making the wise choice. This man is wise in his attitude towards God because he recognizes that God is somebody to be feared because God holds judgment in his hands. So again, he realizes he's about to meet God the judge, to stand before him in his righteousness and to give an answer for his life. And here's the next thing that he realizes. He realizes that his condemnation is deserved. Verse 41, and we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes. So I want to make a distinction between two things, but the first one is this, this idea of it being deserved. The idea that my actions have led to this outcome. Romans 6 says, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The wages of sin is death. What does that mean? It means you earn death. You have paid sin, you have worked sin, and you have earned your wages. Wages are something that you earn. They are owed to you. You know what God owes you? People sometimes say, man, God doesn't owe, owe anybody anything. Wrong. He does owe you something. You've earned something from God. You have earned his judgment because you've worked really hard for it with your sin. He owes it to you. The way a boss owes wages to their worker, God owes judgment to mankind because we work for it. What we see is this man at this point is accepting the fact that he has broken the contract with God and he is reaping the consequences of that. Right? A whole, most of the Old Testament is, is positioned in this sort of way of saying, God basically says, I will do this if you will do this. And if you don't do this, then I will do this. This man is accepting responsibility. It's acceptance of the cause and, and effect relationship and, and, and nature of things. I did the crime and now I'm going to get what I deserve for that. I'm, I'm going to do the time. Again, that's a strange thing in our culture. 
We have a culture that hates responsibility. Our culture blames all of our problems on anybody except for ourselves. My parents didn't love me enough, or I was treated unfairly, or I wasn't potty trained properly when I was a kid, or something like that. This is the source of all my problems. There's a crisis of responsibility in our culture. And here's another piece. This is just free. In an an effort to truly care for real victims in our society, we have made being a victim into a virtue. And now everybody goes, well, if I'm going to be virtuous, then i got to be a victim somehow, which means it's not my fault. I didn't do anything. Somebody else did these things to me, okay? There are real situations in our world where something evil was done to you, and you are a victim in those circumstances. But we've turned that into basically the way that we see everything in the world. But not this man. This man says, I'm not a victim. I'm the criminal. I'm the one who did these things. There's no excuses. It's, it's, it's not somebody else's fault, Jesus. It's my fault. He doesn't come up to Jesus and start trying to give excuses, right? Uh, oh, I had a rough family life, or I fell in with the wrong crowd, or I didn't have the same opportunities that everybody else had. It's not my fault that I did these things, Jesus, that I stole in whatever situation that got me on this cross. Instead, he acknowledges. He says, I did this. I'm responsible for this. But here's an interesting thing. He's not just responsible because that's not the only thing that we have to recognize. We're not just responsible for our sin. We're guilty of it. We are punished justly, he recognizes. Okay? Because think about this. There's a difference between what is deserved and what is right or just in a sense. There's a difference between accepting responsibility and accepting guilt. Just because something is consistent with my actions doesn't necessarily mean that it's also fair. And just because I acknowledge the cause and effect relationship with something doesn't mean that you necessarily agree that the outcome was just. So let me give you a silly example, right? Kid wants to borrow the car and, and the parent says before they leave the house, hey, make sure before you bring my car back, you fill up the tank with gas. Okay. Well, the kid goes out that night. He drives around. He doesn't fill it up with gas. He brings it back the next day. Dad goes out, sees the tank's empty. And he says, hey, you didn't fill up the tank with gas. And so you never get to drive a car ever again. Okay. Now. The kid might say, hey, I deserved the rebuke because I broke the rule. You told me to do something. I didn't do it. I get that there's a cause and effect relationship, and this is my fault. But the consequence of it is not just, okay? It's right because I didn't do what you told me to do. But also, this is a little bit over the top. This thing is not in proportion with justice. So, There is a difference between responsibility, taking responsibility for something, and acknowledging guilt. But that's what this guy is doing. He's doing both. He says, I deserve what I am getting, and it is right that I would receive this. Now, again, we can make a distinction here between God's judgment and the Roman judgment in terms of this man being crucified and all that stuff. But the key here is this. He realizes that he is broken Probably both sets of laws, both God's law and man's law. And man's law, which is ultimately based on God's law. 
But notice something. These things put together, this acceptance of guilt, this acceptance of responsibility, this acceptance of, of the authority of God, this is, that's what repentance is. Okay? That's what repentance looks like. Those are the basic elements of what repentance looks like. We could add more elements. We could probably go to other places in scripture and fill out what it looks like to be biblically repentant. But this is the defining characteristics of it. A lot of times we'll say, well, what repentance is, is it's turning from sin and turning to Christ or turning away from sin and following Christ. There's a sense in which I think that's not exactly right. Following Christ is the fruit of repentance. Repentance is about the action of recognizing and turning. Okay, so for example, the very word repentance in in Greek is this word metanoia. You've probably heard me say this a hundred times. Meta means another, and noio means thinking. So what does repentance mean? That word means you start thinking in another way. All right, you start going, I used to think about my sin this way. I've changed my mind about it. Now I think about it the way God says I should think about it. God's right. I'm wrong. I deserve what I'm getting based on my life. And he is just in condemning me. That's what repentance looks like. Now, again, in the life of a new, of a born again believer, you know what that's going to lead to? That's going to lead to a life of recognizing sin, turning from it, following Jesus and living in righteousness. The Bible talks about fruits in keeping with repentance. Okay, but I think repentance is a step back from that, right? Because if you think about it, this guy doesn't, if, if repentance is turning and following Jesus, this guy on the cross doesn't have a whole lot of opportunity to follow, right? There's not a whole lot he can do while he's hanging on that cross next to Jesus. If repentance is about what we do after, but I think it's about the fruit of that. So, so this man repents. He says, I take responsibility. Again, this is a far cry from the way the world looks in repentance. That sort of, well, nobody's perfect. That's what we think repentance is, I think, a lot of times, not only in the church, but in the world. What does it mean if you're repentant? Well, nobody's perfect. Man, saying nobody's perfect is a far cry from agreeing with God about the nature of your sin and guilt. Okay, those are not the same things. But this man is truly repenting, acknowledging God's authority, taking personal responsibility, and agreeing with God's justice. Those are the hallmarks of repentance. Let me say them again. Acknowledging God's authority, taking personal responsibility, and agreeing with God's justice. Okay, that's what repentance looks like, and that's what this man does. But we've said we have to repent and believe. What does the belief look like in this passage? Well, this man also turns to Jesus and he says, I know what we've done. I know how we lived. But this man, Jesus, he has done nothing wrong. He knows that while his repentance is valid, Jesus doesn't need to repent. Because Jesus hasn't done anything worthy of execution. Now, this is key. Do you think this guy understands that Jesus is truly and fully sinless? which the Bible teaches us. Do you think this guy realizes that Jesus is the lamb without spot or blemish that will be the perfect atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world? Probably not. 
he probably doesn't get it on that scale, although he could, because the Holy Spirit could re- reveal that to him as well. But I don't think he probably does. But here's what he does realize. He realizes that Jesus has done nothing worthy of death, that he is an innocent man, and that while he is being condemned, his condemnation is just. Jesus' punishment is the height of injustice, that Jesus doesn't deserve to be there, and they do. And then he recognizes something else. He says this. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's an interesting thing to say to somebody a random person that you've known for about three hours because you're both being crucified at the same time. When you come into your kingdom, so what does that mean? Well, his fellow thief has already said it. Aren't you the Messiah? I think the repentant thief actually believes it. He's heard the mockers this whole day yelling up at Jesus. If you're the Messiah, if you're the Savior, if you're the King of the Jews. And now he says, when you come into your kingdom, this man believes that Jesus has a kingdom and that he is going to it. It points to the fact that this man recognizes that Jesus is more than just a prophet. He's more than just a rabbi. He's more than just... A, a good man who got caught up in the wheels of history. No, this man is worthy to be king in heaven. And when he gets there, he will have honor and glory and authority. I think this man reads the sign that we talked about last week that was hung above Jesus' head, and he believes it. He hears the mockers doubt the claims but he stakes his entire eternity on that claim. This man is the Messiah. He is the Davidic king. He is the person that people have been waiting for for centuries and millennia. And so you know what he does? He does the only thing he can do. It's a one in a million shot. And I can only imagine that he feels that way in the moment. Can you imagine being crucified knowing that you have finally received the just sentence for your sins, that you will be dead in a matter of hours and think, I got one shot. It probably won't work, but I'm going to take it. And so he turns to Jesus and he says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? He doesn't try to convince him of anything, right? He doesn't give Jesus his spiritual resume. We've already said he doesn't make any excuses. Mainly, he doesn't give him a resume because he doesn't have a resume. All the things that most people offer up to God for why they are in right relationship with God, he doesn't have any of them, right? He doesn't have morality. Obviously not. Civility or service to his fellow man seems to not be the case. Religiosity, probably not. I doubt he was a faithful attender at synagogue and temple. Notice that's why repentance has to come first. 
Because if you show up to Jesus with anything in your hand, you're going to blow the whole thing. You're going to miss the whole point of it. This guy says, what options do I have? The answer is none. I have no options, no merit. Nothing could recommend me to God or to this man who is Messiah, zero. His only hope is that God will somehow disregard his track record and grant mercy to him solely based on the fact that this man knows Jesus and that Jesus knows him. That's it. And again, notice, I don't think this guy understands that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He doesn't understand that Christ is becoming the penal substitutionary atonement for all of mankind's sins and that his perfect righteousness is going to be imputed by grace through faith. He knows nothing of the virgin birth. He knows nothing of the resurrection because it hasn't happened yet. He doesn't know about the ascension. He doesn't know about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't know about the second coming. He doesn't know about the inerrancy of scripture. This guy's got awful theology, probably. Now, here's the deal. Every one of those truths that I just said is critically important. And the church has a responsibility to teach them rightly and to teach against falsehood Completely. We don't minimize any of those things. We don't undermine them in any way. Okay. But here's the deal. None of those things save us. Understanding those things rightly don't save us. And by the grace of God, this man realizes that Jesus is the only hope, that Jesus is the only mediator, that Jesus is the only bridge that gaps that bridges the gap between sinful man and holy God. And so he says what other people have said in other stories, though maybe not quite as dramatic. He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Remember me when you come in to your kingdom. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be, I'll be healed. If you are willing, Jesus, you could make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. Be clean. I love the way uh, there's, a, there's a little clip, and you may have seen it going around online from a pastor named Alistair Begg. Um, he's he's, he's a, a pastor in the United States. He's, he's uh, Scottish, and he has this great accent or whatever. But he tells this story as well. And he, and he imagines this sort of, almost comical scene where this man stands at the pearly gates and the angel is there, you know, doing what we imagine in those little scenarios of, of welcoming people to heaven, except that man stands up at the pearly gates and the angel says, look at his list. And he says, sorry, sir, but how did you get here? And the guy says, I don't know. I don't know. Well, well, did you believe the right things? Did you go to church or synagogue? Did you did you do the good deeds? Did you? No, I didn't do any of those things. Well, how did you get here? I don't know how I got here. Well, let me get my supervisor. And so the angel calls another angel over, and the angel's like, "Okay, uh, sir, could you just could you just tell us what happened? Like, how did you get here?" And he says, "I told you already. I don't know." And he's like, "Well, you're here." 
something must have happened. And the guy says, all I know is the guy on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. All I know is that the Messiah, the man who I believe to be the king to come, said I could come. And that's it. Now, again, we understand a much fuller understanding about what Jesus is accomplishing for us on the cross, about how Jesus' death is paying the cost. Okay, We understand it way more fully, but that understanding is not what saves us. What saves us is Jesus. That's it. This man says, I have put my faith in Jesus to save me. And and Jesus says, incredible words, today you will be with me in paradise. Can you, again, the drama of the whole scene, can you imagine living your whole life separated from God? Like living in, in sin, these patterns of crime that this guy is probably part of, and, he, and assuming that, I mean, you're just trying to get through the next day and doing these things over and over again and living your entire life that way. And then finally it catches up with you. You get arrested and they sentence you to be crucified and you're hanging on a cross and you're thinking, man, this is the end. Like it's all been done. It's all wasted. My life's over. I, it's all wasted. And now I just have hell to look forward to. That's what, that's what I've got. And then it just so happens that that day that Jesus is the one that's crucified next to you. Like how many people died on Roman crosses somewhere? And then you get to be the guy who gets crucified next to Jesus. That's all of our stories, right? That's the reality is that you are blessed beyond recognition that you lived in a time and you've lived in a place for all the garbage that's gone on in your life that the gospel has been told to you. And that you had the opportunity in that moment to say, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says today, you will be with me, paradise. This man realizes that if Jesus is for him, then it doesn't matter who's against him. It doesn't matter the circumstances of his life. It doesn't matter how all these things played out. It doesn't even matter that in a few short hours, a Roman centurion is going to come, break this guy's ankles, and that he is going to suffocate to death in agony on a Roman cross. That doesn't matter anymore. Because he knows Jesus. And Jesus knows him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. All right. Um, that's why I love this story, man. There are a dozen other stories that we go to of people just counting on the mercy of God to be saved, but none in my estimation, none come close to this one. Um, in the clearness, the presentation of what it takes, the realization that we have to come to, and nowhere else did we see the mercy of Christ so clearly and so deliberately and so obviously demonstrated than in this story. And of course it comes on the day of the crucifixion, because where else would it come?
So what I want to do is go to the Lord in prayer. I don't know. I look around and I go, you know what? I think probably the case is, is that most of us in here have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Most of us in here know him already. But I also think it is the case that there are many times where people have grown up in church and they have been church people and they have lived good lives and they've not done the bad things that you're not supposed to do. And they feel like, yeah, then I must be good with God because of those things. And yeah, I believe in Jesus because, yeah, that's because it's true. Everybody believes in Jesus. But the question is, is have you put your faith alone in Jesus Christ? Is that the only thing that you were counting on? If that's something that you come to and you start thinking of and saying, Lord, I don't know that, that that's what I've done. Now, this is what I would say to you. Go to Christ now. Go to Christ as soon as you can. Go to Christ before you leave this room. Go to Christ before you stand up in your seat and say, I don't have anything to offer, Jesus. I am bankrupt of all merit. I know what I deserve. But would you remember me when you enter your kingdom? I trust in you alone for my salvation. I would love to talk you through that. If that's something you're like, you know what, Ash, I've never done that. I would love to talk with you about that and, and explain how you can know Jesus Christ in that way to help you understand those things. So come and talk to me. Um, you don't have to have me to do it, though, right? You don't need to go to anyone else but Jesus for that. I would love to know if you did so we can celebrate with you. Um, but if you're sort of like, Ash, I still I want to talk about these things a little bit more, then come talk to me um, today after the service, this week. You can call me in the middle of the night. You can do whatever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, let us never forget the amazing grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. Let us never mistake any of our works, any of our ceremonies, any of our right opinions or right beliefs, right actions. God, let us never mistake any of those things for the free gift of mercy that you offer us through faith in Jesus Christ. God, give every single one of us a clear picture of our sin and guilt and give us a clear picture of the fact that only Jesus is mighty to save. Only Jesus is worthy to be Savior. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song.
hearted old curmudgeon. Uh, yeah, that's right. You can ask my wife. Um, but the gospel ought to be able to melt our hearts, right? Um, and we should let it melt our hearts. And those truths should be something that they don't become so commonplace that we live like they're just air, Right? Um, we need to remind ourselves of, of the truth 
and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Um, what an incredible and amazing gift that that is. Um, that that needs to be the center of our lives. Um, we're heading towards the resurrection. We've got three weeks before we get there. Next week, um, we're going to talk about Jesus' death uh, and crucifixion some more. The week after that, we're going to talk about Jesus' death and crucifixion some more. Um, and then in three weeks, we will talk about his resurrection. Um, and so hope you'll be here for that. Um, hope you can join us. Um, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.